Once upon a time, there was a kingdom. And in this kingdom, there are two parts of the royal family. A virtuous and good part of the family, and a corrupt and evil branch of the family. Through a series of schemes and tricks, the evil branch of the family comes to power and rules the kingdom. It is not right. The virtuous and good part of the family wants to restore their rightful place as the leaders, and the two sides prepare for battle. And then, just before the battle begins, Arjuna, the leader of the good faction, goes out to no man's land at the center of the battlefield with his charioteer, who is actually the god Krishna in human form. And Arjuna is distraught. He looks across the field and sees his family, his teachers, his friends, all ready to fight against him. He knows his cause is righteous, but is it worth killing his family for? Arjuna speaks, Oh, Krishna, I see my own relations here, anxious to fight, and my limbs grow weak. My mouth is dry, my body shakes, and my hair is standing on end. My skin burns, and the bow has slipped from my hand. I am unable to stand. My mind seems to be whirling. These signs bode evil for us. I do not see that any good can come from killing relations in battle. O Krishna, I have no desire for victory or for a kingdom or pleasures. Of what use is a kingdom or pleasures or even life if those for whose sake we desire these things, teachers, fathers, sons, grandfathers, uncles, in-laws, grandsons, and others with family ties are engaging in this battle renouncing their wealth and their lives. Even if they were to kill me, I would not want to kill them, not even to become rulers of the three worlds, how much less for earth alone. Though they are overpowered by greed and see no evil in destroying families or injuring friends, we see these evils. Why shouldn't we turn away from this sin? Better for me if the sons of the king, weapons in hand, were to attack me in battle and kill me unarmed and unresisting. Arjuna then throws his weapons aside and sits down on his chariot in the middle of the battlefield. This is the opening scene of the Bhagavad Gita, one of the most important sacred texts in Hinduism. The Bhagavad Gita is part of a much larger Hindu epic called the Mahabharata, which is longer than the Bible, the Iliad, and the Odyssey combined. The story came into being roughly 2,000 years ago and tells the story of of the family feud that Arjuna finds himself in the middle of. The Bhagavad Gita itself is short, only 700 verses. And so if the story today, I I tell today, intrigues you, please pick up a copy. There's nuance and all kinds of things in the original that I can't do in my condensation today. After this opening scene, the text continues, largely as a dialogue between Arjuna and Krishna, 
the God who has taken human form as his charioteer, with Arjuna asking questions and Krishna answering them, describing several spiritual paths available to Arjuna and in turn to all of us. Krishna responds first by telling Arjuna not to be afraid and to take the long view and rooted in a tradition that believes in the reincarnation of souls, the long view is very, very long. Krishna says, you speak sincerely, but your sorrow has no cause. The wise grieve neither for the living nor for the dead. There has never been a time when you and I and the kings gathered here have not existed, nor will there be a time when we cease to exist. As the same person inhabits the body through childhood, youth, and old age, so too, at the time of death, he obtains another body. The wise are not deluded by these changes. The impermanent has no reality. Reality lies in the eternal. Those who have seen the boundary between those two have attained the end of all knowledge. Realize that which pervades the universe and is indestructible No power can affect this unchanging, imperishable reality. The body is mortal. That which dwells in the body is immortal and immeasurable. Therefore, Arjuna, fight in this battle. Krishna speaks an important truth of the Hindu tradition that we all possess immortal souls and our souls are connected to the transcendent God. Each of us carry a spark of the divine within us. And some in our tradition hold similar beliefs and see them as the basis for our principle that every person has inherent worth and dignity. Coming to this knowledge that we are more than our bodies, our desires, and our senses is one of the spiritual paths of Hinduism. These paths are called yoga, and the path of wisdom is called janana yoga. Yoga is a Hindu word we likely know. It shares the same root as the English verb to yoke and roughly means discipline. In Hinduism, there are several yogas, several spiritual disciplines that an observant person might pursue. Janana yoga is one of these, the discipline of wisdom. Those who practice Janana Yoga cultivate their intuition and their ability to see through present circumstances to enduring truths. They develop this ability through meditation. Arjuna is trying to figure all of this out. This is a lot of knowledge to get all of a sudden in the middle of a battlefield. So he asks, what does this look like practically? He says, tell me of those who, have, who live established in wisdom, ever aware of the self, O Krishna. How do they talk? How do they sit? How, how move about? And Krishna, in one of the most famous passages, in the text responds with a description of those who have achieved this wisdom. They live in wisdom who see themselves in all and all in them who have renounced every selfish desire and sense craving tormenting the heart. Neither agitated by grief nor hankering after pleasure, they live free from lust and fear and anger. 
Established in meditation, they are truly wise. Fettered no more by selfish attachments, they are neither elated by good fortune nor depressed by bad. Such are the seers. When you keep talking about sense objects, attachment comes. Attachment breeds desire, the lust of possession that burns to anger. Anger clouds the judgment. You can no longer learn from past mistakes. Lost is the power to choose between what is wise and what is unwise. And your life is an utter waste. But when you move amidst the world of sense, free from attachment and aversion alike, there comes the peace in which all sorrows end, and you live in the wisdom of the self. The disunited mind is far from wise. How can it meditate? How be at peace? When you know no peace, how can you know joy? When you let your mind follow the call of the senses, they carry away your better judgment as storms drive a boat off his charted course on the sea. As rivers flow into the ocean but cannot make the vast ocean overflow, so flow the streams of the senses into the sea of peace that is the wise one. But this is not so with the desirer of desires. They are forever free who renounce all selfish desires and break away from the ego cage of I, me, and mine to be united with the Lord. This is the supreme state. Attain, to, attain this and pass from death to immortality. In a Hindu context, passing from death to immortality means to achieve union with God and escape the cycle of rebirth. Often when we talk about reincarnation in the West, we talk about it like it's a good thing. And in Hinduism, it isn't really. The spiritual task is to escape the cycle of reincarnation by achieving liberation and union with God and then to exist as part of God forever. Some translate achieving this union as becoming illumined. So Krishna lifts up this practice of jnana yoga, but he doesn't tell Arjuna that's what he should do. No, Arjuna, a warrior, is a man of action. So another spiritual path, another spiritual discipline, another yoga is a better fit with his personality and the challenges before him. Karma yoga is the spiritual discipline for Arjuna and for all people of action. Some of us probably know the word karma as the idea within Hinduism and other religions of India that the universe is completely moral, that everything happens for a reason, that there is no chance. The word karma at its simplest means action. Karma yoga is a way of taking action without being attached to outcomes, with all action done as an offering to the holy, to God. Krishna says, you have the right to work, but never to the fruit of work. You should never engage in action for the sake of reward, nor should you long for inaction. Perform work in the world, Arjuna, as a man established within himself, without selfish attachments and alike in success and defeat. Krishna continues on this theme later. The awakened sages call a person wise 
when all his understandings are free from anxiety about results. All his selfish desires have been consumed in the, f in the first of knowledge. The wise, ever satisfied, have abandoned all external supports. Their security is unaffected by the results of their action. They live in freedom, those who have gone beyond the dualities of life. Competing with no one, they are alike in success and failure and content with whatever comes. They are free without selfish attachments. They perform all work in the spirit of service, and their karma is dissolved. As you might imagine, by this point in the story, Arjuna seems to be overwhelmed with all that's happening, all of the profound spiritual wisdom his charioteer, Krishna, is sharing with him. It all feels so challenging. It's a lot to take in. Like many of us, when faced with these lofty descriptions, Arjuna doubts his abilities. Can he really do this, achieve this sort of wisdom? He has good intentions, but maybe not the commitment and self-discipline necessary to get the job done, to live in this way that's being described. Arjuna asks, what if I can't do this? Krishna, what happens to one who has faith but lacks self-control and wanders from the path, not attaining success in yoga? And Krishna is reassuring. All good work is valuable. If you do not achieve success in this life, you will try again in the next life. But your efforts now will make your efforts then easier. You will retain the wisdom and the discipline you have gained in this life. You might even be born in a family that can help you move further along your spiritual path. And as the conversation continues, Krishna describes a third spiritual discipline, a third yoga, bhakti yoga. And this is the spiritual practice of devotion, of love. It is the path of adoring God with every element of one's being. And this by far is the most popular of the yogas today, practiced by most of the world's Hindus. It is practiced at shrines and in temples as people make offerings of food and flowers to the god or goddess they are devoted to as they look lovingly at statues, as people praise their gods and goddesses with hymns and seek to love them fully, to be united with them. Krishna describes this practice. Whatever I am offered in devotion with a pure heart, a leaf, a flower, fruit, or water, I accept with joy. Whatever you do, make it an offering to me the food you eat, the sacrifices you make, the help you give, even your suffering. In this way, you will be freed from the bondage of karma and from its results both pleasant and painful. Then firm in renunciation and yoga, with your heart free, you will come to me. He continues, I look upon all creatures equally. None are less dear to me and none are more dear, but those who worship me with love, live in me, and I come to life in them. The conversation continues with Arjuna continuing his questions and Krishna continuing to answer. At one point, Arjuna asked Krishna to reveal his divine form 
and the descriptions that follow are spectacular and terrifying. The descriptions of the spiritual life continue with compelling metaphor and example. At the end of his final discourse, Krishna asks Arjuna, have you listened with attention? Are you now free from your doubts and confusion? Arjuna replies, you have dispelled my doubts and delusions and I understand through your grace. My faith is firm now and I will do your will. The story ends there. We can assume that Arjuna then leads his people into battle against his extended family. The text doesn't tell us what happens, but there's a strong hint in the final words from the narrator. Wherever the divine Krishna and the mighty Arjuna are, there will be prosperity, victory, happiness, and sound judgment. Of this I am sure. Like any story that's, been, that's endured thousands of years of being told and retold, the story can be read in a number of ways. There's the surface reading, the debate between Arjuna and Krishna about what is the best course of action, the best way to approach a situation where there are no right choices. This reading and the teaching that sometimes violence is the best of the bad options resonates for many and was an important inspiration for the Indian independence movement, even though that movement was largely nonviolent. It resonates in our tradition as we grow out of a just war tradition that says that sometimes, in certain circumstances, violence is the best of a bad set of bad options. It resonates for anyone trying to see their way through a situation that seems impossible. There is an allegorical reading of the story. In this, in this reading, the battlefield is within each of us. The good and virtuous parts of ourselves are up against the evil and corrupt parts of ourselves. This reading of the story was especially resonant for Mahatma Gandhi, who called the Bhagavad Gita his spiritual dictionary. He writes, it is the description not of war between cousins, but between the two natures in us, the good and the evil. I regard the king and his party as the baser impulses in man, and Arjuna and his party as the higher impulses. The field of battle is our own body. An eternal battle is going on between the two camps, and the text vividly describes it. Krishna is the dweller within, ever whispering to a pure heart. Gandhi believes that Krishna is that still, small voice deep inside that sings to us all. And I chose to share this story this morning, in part because it's an important story to know. If we are gonna hang this quilt with symbols on it, with integrity in this space, with symbols of many of the world's faiths, we should know the sacred stories that resonate to people who hold these symbols as holy. This is part of the learning we'll be doing as a community this year. And so I hope this year all of us will grow our appreciative understanding of other traditions, that our learning together will enrich our spiritual lives and help us be better neighbors to other people in our community, both within this church and beyond, who practice other faiths. I also share this story because it reminds us of some of the best in our tradition too. 
In Hinduism, there are various yogas, various ways to practice the faith, to speak, seek spiritual liberation. And we as Unitarian Universalists share this idea. There is not one way to practice our faith. We have our contemplatives, those who pray and meditate and seek wisdom through books and discussion. We have those among us for whom adoration is part of their spiritual practice, whether it is adoration of the holy as they understand it, the natural world, their highest ideals, whether they see God in relationship with others. We have our active types who practice selfless service in their work lives as they pursue social justice, in service to friends and family and community. And of course, there are many whose religious life and spiritual practices might not fit neatly into the Hindu formula that I laid out, who are nevertheless a valuable part of this community. And many of us practice two or three of these spiritual paths. And we can all encourage one another along these different ways of practicing our shared faith and make room for that in our worship and in our ways of being here. Unlike the Hindu community, we cannot point to one of these ways of being as overwhelmingly the most common. And that sometimes creates tensions in our community. When I meet with music leaders and other leaders to plan worship, we talk about what ideas and what content each service will hold. And we talk about who might not be served on that particular Sunday. We try to make sure that we rotate who is not served from Sunday to Sunday. So everyone gets a turn to be satisfied, to have the language and the type of music speak to them. And everyone gets a chance to be dissatisfied. This is the challenge of being a community with many different worldviews, with many different musical preferences, a community that has a diversity of what language is most meaningful. And I know I've shared this teaching with you all before, but it's something I think about a lot. Uh, so a minister I respect talks about how only 75% of what happens in worship should be meaningful to you. That other 25%, perhaps you might find it kind of boring. Maybe you actively dislike it or hate it. But that is serving the spiritual needs of someone else here. And then in turn, that someone else will sit through the boring parts or the parts they hate for, that are speaking to you. I wish there was some ma magic formula that we could raise those percentages of satisfaction. Um, but I haven't figured that out yet. Perhaps it's there, but I think that diversity and that sometimes sitting with discomfort or boredom is a beautiful thing that we are able to do. It's a beautiful thing that we are able to hold space for one another, to make room for the different languages, the different rituals, the people who love the organ, the people who not so much, the people who love the rock music, the people not so much. And we are able to let each of us have that chance where our heart is spoken to and our mind is spoken to. Thank you for holding this tension with me. Most of the time, we hold it pretty gracefully. Sometimes it's not easy, but we are doing 
our best in making space for everyone to be here. So may we continue to face our struggles, both internal and external, with courage. May we pursue meaning, insight, and truth in the way that illumines us. May we make room for everyone else to follow their paths where it takes them and support them along the way. And may there be prosperity, victory, happiness, and sound judgment wherever we go. May it be so. May we make it so. And amen.